It's fall at JCPenney. Time to refresh your closet. This Thursday through Monday, get Levi's lowest prices of the season on 514 straight fit jeans for guys, $36.99. And select Arizona booties for her for $35.99. Plus, save an additional 50% off clearance prices already reduced by 60 to 80%. And get an extra $10 off with your coupon. Hurry in now. JCPenney. Coupon valid 10, 5 to 10, 9. Levi's and other brands excluded from coupon. Clearance selections vary by store while supplies last. Savings off regular and original prices. Intermediate markdowns may have been taken. See store or jcp.com for details. Season of first 927 to 10.18. I don't think I've been part of a team like this where everybody gets along. It's like playing with your blood brother. You are locked on fantasy basketball, your daily podcast on fantasy basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And welcome to the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast, brought to you by Basketball Monster. My name is Josh Lloyd, and you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at redrock underscore bball, and of course on Facebook at facebook.com slash redrockbasketball. We are here with another of the Season in Review series of podcasts. Today we're going to be looking at the Phoenix Suns, a team for which I seem to have a an above-average um, percentage of of listeners that support Phoenix. I don't know what it is. I don't know why my listeners in particular have a, a massive amount of Phoenix Suns fans. Um, but hey, it is what it is. I've got some teams where I have very few fans, but for, for one, Phoenix is a team that's extremely well supported with uh, with the listeners to this podcast. So I assume there'll be quite a few of you that are, that are wanting to hear about this. And they're also a pretty interesting team from a, a fantasy point of view and from a real-life basketball building perspective. So we're going to get into a fair bit of that in today's podcast. So let's get to it. To it. Let's get to it indeed. We will talk Phoenix Suns basketball. But before we do do that, I do have a message I need to read out for any of you who are looking to join the Locked On Podcast Network. The Locked On Podcast Network is hiring a national sales manager. You can be a part of the fastest-growing sports podcast network, selling the NBA channel, the NFL channel, and the entire network to national advertisers. If you have the skills, the perseverance, and the game to be a part of the Locked On Podcast Network, email LockedOnPodcasts at gmail.com. That's LockedOnPodcasts, with an S at the end, at gmail.com, with your resume. LockedOnPodcasts at gmail.com. If you are interested or you have the qualifications to become our national sales manager, that'd be a... Yeah, I think it's a pretty good opportunity for you guys who are looking to do something in a, in a media field, in a sports field, and with uh, obviously um, marketing and that sort of stuff. We are we are growing by the day, and there's uh, plenty of opportunities there. So yeah, if you are interested in that and you have those qualifications, send your email through. All right, we're going to talk... Uh, we're going to talk Phoenix Suns in today's show. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how this team looks from a, an overall macro perspective, I guess. You, know, you hear plenty of Suns fans that were pissed about the results of the draft lottery as they fell down from the number two pick down to the number four pick. Lots of people um, crying rigged, which you know that I think is 100% a pile of bullshit. It's not rigged. It was unlucky. Um, but I don't think Phoenix should be absolutely devastated that they moved down to number four. Yeah, that they didn't get that opportunity to draft Lonzo Ball. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm not as big a Lonzo Ball fan as what others are. So yeah, heading down to four, I think they're going to have a selection of, uh, of you know, obviously quite a few good players, and I don't think it's a bad position for the Suns to be in. 
So they are, as I said, down at pick four. They also have pick 32 and pick 54. That pick 32 is quite a valuable one as well. So they should be able to get a player who makes a roster at that spot and maybe even sneaks their way into the rotation. We saw Tyler Eulis with a pick selected later than that last season become you know, a more than a rotation player for them. So there's definitely players you can get at that pick 32. It's not a bad, not a bad spot for them to be at. In terms of upcoming free agency for the Suns, they've got um, only one unrestricted free agent, and that's Ronnie Price. I don't know why he was playing in the first place. I don't know why he was on the team. I don't know why you would bring him back. He's done. He's cooked. you got two guys with non-guaranteed deals for next year, Leandro Barbosa and Derek Jones Jr. I don't think there's any doubt that uh, Jones will be back. Barbosa, I guess it depends how things play out in free agency, but I imagine that uh, Barbosa will be back as well. And then the bigger decisions for Phoenix, the two restricted free agents, the two big men, Alex Len and big source Alan Williams. Both of those guys are restricted free agents. Both of those guys play at center. Obviously, Williams had his little surge at the end of the season and then started to fall off. Um, then started to come back. I think if you're going to rely upon Alan Williams to become your starting center, you're never going to go anywhere. He is a decent energy bench big uh, a backup center, maybe a third string center. That's sort of where he tops out. He does what he does very well. You know, aggressive rebounding obviously can score quite efficiently uh, close to the rim. Can't do anything much apart from that. His defensive stuff's not brilliant, but it's but it's still pretty good. And Len's a guy who's battled a lot of injuries and failed to live up to the potential that I thought he had. I thought he could be a, a really decent player. I have hated the way that he's been used in Phoenix over the journey. You know, playing alongside Tyson Chandler, dicked around this year as well. But my faith in him is waning. I still think that he's a, a decent option. There is a question from my, one of the listeners later on about Alex Len, which we'll get to. But I think that they, um, I think they'll look to bring both of those guys back, depending on the deals. If Len starts getting fifteen million dollar a year deals, then they'll say, "See, see you later, mate." But I think that Len's still young enough to be, even if he's just a, a backup center at some point, or you know, him and Williams play the 20-odd the minutes apiece as we move forward. Remember, they've still got Tyson Chandler as well. But I can see both of these guys returning to Phoenix on uh, on not necessarily massive deals, which will be which will be good for the Suns. Not that they've got too many uh, salary cap concerns at the moment. We look at their record for the year. They were 24 and 58 over the course of the season. And they actually underperformed their expected win total, their point differential, by three wins. They had some um, they had some memorable victories. The uh, Tyler Eulis buzzer beater in that crazy game against Boston. They had the Devin Booker 70-point game. It's obviously some really positive moments for the Suns through the year. A lot of shithouse ones as well. But the fact that they were a little bit under expectation gives them a little bit of a hope for, you know, maybe they can push to a 30-win season next year. Maybe they can get 30-32. That shouldn't be out of the realms of possibility as the growth of all these guys goes forward. And, and maybe if um, there's no dickery going on, we can get a full season out of Eric Bledsoe. We can get the Devin Booker um, game growth. Tyler Eulis, pick four. Dragon Bender plays a full season. Marquise Chris, maybe he develops. There's a, you know, TJ Warren has a, has a full year in, in, a, in a decent role. There is a lot of potential with this team. And I think they should be you know, feeling that they're on the way up. They played the second highest pace in the NBA. And... One thing that we've noticed from doing these early podcasts is that all these teams down the bottom, very high paces, which gives you the, 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 okay, we talk about pace and space in the NBA, but maybe these teams that are playing at these pace, these higher paces, it's not actually working for them. So that's something that teams will want to have a look at because, yeah, the Nets had a very high pace, the Suns, the Lakers, the Sixers had a decently high pace, and we're all sitting here yeah, at the bottom of the pile. 
They also had the 29th highest or second worst three-point attempt rate, which for a team that's boosting or boasting a guy like Devin Booker, which you know I'm going to rail on the comparison with him and Clay Thompson because it's ludicrous and it's not true, but they should be attempting more than you know more than just one team in terms of three-point attempt rates. They need to do more than that. They also had the, the double whammy of 29th in three-point attempt rate, 27th in three-point percentage, which is a horrendous combination. Like The Nets had a really bad three-point percentage, but they had a massive three-point rate, so it actually made up for it, and they started to hit these threes. But that's horrendous from the Suns, and they were 29th in the NBA in total threes made. You know, horrible. They got to the line a lot, third highest in free throw rate. Their defense was abysmal, 28th in defensive rating, 25th in turnovers. Um, but they, this is something that does need to change. And again, why, part of why I think Earl Watson's a really bad coach, they took the most two-point attempts in the entire NBA. And and that that can be okay if you if you're doing it rocket style and taking them at the rim, but that's not what the Suns were doing. They just Earl Watson's not a good coach, and this game plan it just it, it wasn't ideal. Sixth in offensive rebounding percentage, a lot of that comes from Alan Williams's work. Um, so overall, there were some positives there, but some things that need to change in terms of game style and the way that this team plays. Let's get into the individual stuff and talk about uh, the best offensive ratings on the team. I think you'll be surprised at some of the names that come up here. Tyson Chandler led the team in offensive rating. Derek Jones Jr. was number two. TJ Warren and then Alan Williams. So we had no, none of the guards and you know, two centers here. And Chandler, a guy, I think a forgotten guy who we didn't see for that second half of the year as he was uh, you know, shut down as the Suns you know, dicked their way around to try and get that high pick. And then it ended up didn't work. And people can talk about karma and basketball gods and all that sort of shit. Or you can go the other way around and say, oh, yeah, tanking doesn't pay off. It, it's not the case. It, it just isn't. I understand why the Suns Wanted to get those extra odds. It didn't work out, but it's no grand plan from some mystical person, yeah, punishing them from sitting these guys. I hated it. You know that I hated, yeah, sitting these, especially Eric Bledsoe, sitting him for as long as they did was, was ludicrous, but it's not some sort of weird and wacky magical punishment that the Suns suffered by not getting that second pick because they did all of those things. In terms of the best defensive ratings on the team, Alan Williams was number one. Alex Len was number two. Tyson Chandler was number three. All three centers. Number four, Marquise Chris, a guy that did play some center as well, but good to see a younger guy in that list there as well. But interestingly, just the strengths of this team in terms of offensive rating and defensive rating are all the front court. None of their guards, no Bledsoe, no Euless, no Knight, no Booker, um, all the front court players, which was an interesting finding for me. They had seven of their guys shoot over 40% on corner threes. TJ Warren, I think we underestimate just how good a scorer this guy can be and how good a finisher he is. Yeah, he struggles with his three-point shot at times, but 75% finishing at the rim is massive for a wing player. Absolutely huge. And you flip it to the other side, Tyler Euless just 41%, and that that's a real issue. Now, that will improve over time, but when you look at the height of this guy and then you pair it up with that sort of a number and those two things correlate, you're going, okay, how's he going to improve that finishing rate? Will he ever become even close to an average finisher at the rim, which is really going to be an impact on his field goal percentage as we move forward. Another thing that's interesting as well is Euless on his two-point attempts was assisted on just 12% of them. So basically the only shots he was getting were ones that he was creating himself. He wasn't spotting up at any stage. It was him dribbling the ball, you know, pulling up, that sort of thing. 12% is an extraordinarily low number. And that needs to change. He needs to be able to work off the ball a little bit as well. You know, with Bledsoe around, with Booker around, and, and and put himself into other positions rather than just taking the... And he was 
he was taking a lot of shots as well. It wasn't like he was taking, you know, five shots a game or six shots a game. He was taking in that second half of the year, you know, a, a lot of shots. If we look post All-Star, Tyler Eulis was averaging over 12 field goal attempts per game. That, that, that's a lot. And the majority of those coming unassisted is something that I think that does need to be changed. Again, some of that is Earl Watson and his offensive or coaching ineptitude. Let's look at the advanced stats leaders on this team. Eric Bledsoe led the team in PER at 20.6, and Tyson Chandler had the highest true shooting at 70.3. I don't think there's any surprise in either of those two. Usage rate, Devin Booker, again, no surprise. He had a usage of 28.6, which is obviously pretty high. Win shares goes to Bledsoe, and win shares per 48 to Tyson Chandler. Let's look at the box score plus minus. Bledsoe, offensive at 3.7. Defensive went to Alex Len at 1.2, and overall box score plus minus goes to Bledsoe. Again, just showing, I think he is extraordinarily underrated, Eric Bledsoe. People talk about, you know, he's, oh, he's, he's going to get traded straight away. People just forget how good he is. And how much, look, he's look, he's not an elite point guard. He's not probably ever going to make an all-star game, but he's good. He's better than a lot of people give credit for. And he's a, a guy that, in the way the team only won 24 wins, he's a big part of those 24 or, or chunks of those wins anyway. So, uh, and getting, what do you get back in terms of value for him? If you look to trade him, are you happy just giving everything over to Tyler Ulis? I know I wouldn't be. But Bledsoe is an underrated player. He also led the team in VORP as well. Let's look at some of their lineups that they had. Their best five-man lineup that they used uh, over 50 minutes was a weird one. Basically all bench guys. Barbosa, Dudley, Derek Jones, Eulis, and Williams was a plus 10.4, while their most used lineup, which was Bledsoe, Booker, Chandler, Chris, and Warren, was a negative 6.4. So a couple of things to think about whether those players all work together. In fact, their top three lineups in terms of minutes played were all negatives. They only had two three-man lineups over 25 minutes that were positive, and in their top four four-man lineups, Bledsoe and Booker weren't in either of them. That goes back to talking about that highest offensive ratings and best defensive ratings we talked about earlier, how none of the guards were present in that, which which was really interesting to me. In the top uh, five two-man lineups, Dudley or Barbosa. Either one of those two was in those top five lineups. So guys that you don't expect, you know, veterans who did exactly what they needed to do, they were key to this team actually keeping themselves afloat for a lot of this season. And they were two guys who found themselves in a lot of these good lineups that the Suns were able to run out. And in fact, they only had seven two-man lineups at all that were positive throughout the entire season. And Dudley and Barbosa were in six of them. So those guys, in terms of just helping the team win were really, really key factors through the season. And I don't think many people, I guess a lot of Suns fans might realize the the impact that, say, Jared Dudley had. Maybe not so much Barbosa, but I think it goes a little bit undersold, just the sort of positive impact that those guys did have in their in their time on the court and on their time with this uh, team. In terms of stash players, the Suns did have a stash guy, then traded him off to Sacramento in Bogdan Bogdanovich. The other guy that they've got the rights to who's been traded around the NBA numerous times is Cenk Akyol, the Turkish player. He is 30 years old, though, so I don't think we need to be worried too much about him coming over and having any sort of an impact. So I'm not going to go into uh, his numbers and start detailing them with any sort of um, any sort of in-depthness. Let's get into these individual players now and try and uh, and decipher a little bit what we can uh, expect from them moving forward. Let's start with their number one guy, and of course that is Eric Bledsoe, much to maybe the um, surprise of some non-switched-on people, 
you might think it's it's Devin Booker, but it's clearly Eric Bledsoe as their number one player in terms of fantasy output. Yes, Booker is the future for this team, but at the as it stands, Eric Bledsoe is the fantasy guy. Twenty one points a game, he averaged one point six threes. But where he really comes into his own is the fact that he had five boards, six and a half assists, one and a half steals, half a block. Like they are really strong numbers. He was the 25th ranked player this season. He was a top 20 guy last year before he got injured. And the good thing is he played 66 games this year. Yes, you might say, oh, that's not, they didn't even get to 70. That's because the Suns, you know, they dicked him around and they didn't play him at the end of the year, but he was fine. And that's been the pattern with Bledsoe. Have a knee injury and then you come back fine and it's not a problem. Let's hope that that doesn't happen into next year and he cops another knee injury. But when he has the knee injuries and they're different knees, it never seems to bother him after that, which is really an interesting um, development, I guess. The fact that he comes back and doesn't have problems with that, with that knee, and that is exactly what happened. So if you took that risk on him in the fourth round, it, it paid off until he disappeared in the fantasy playoffs, which, again, was a massive pain in the ass. He had an above-average true shooting at 56%. You know, the assist numbers are, are really impressive there for Bledsoe as well. And he wasn't too far off the sort of numbers he did the year before where he was a top 20 player. He scored more. He hit more threes. He had an extra rebound a game. He had more assists. The thing that only dropped off was his field goal percentage and his steals went from 2 down to 1.4. And that 2 down to 1.4 is what caused that 9-spot drop in his rankings. So he, if he is back on this team, which I, I do assume that he is, anything could happen, but I do assume that he is back and he is starting and he's playing 30-plus minutes. And then he's going to be that guy that's in that 20 to 40 range. Unless the Suns saw what they saw from Tyler Eulis at the end of the season and went, yep, he's our man moving forward. But I don't know how you could possibly have watched that and said, yeah, Eulis is our point guard moving forward. I know that Bledsoe's age doesn't necessarily fit on the timeline of Devin Booker. But to me, that's no reason just to get rid of him for nothing and just put your hope in a guy like Euless, who I think is a really good player, and you've heard me speak on that many times. I just don't think that he is ever going to be able to handle the full-time point guard role for a team that's good. I just really have my doubts, size, of course, being the the, the real only doubt that's there, and that stopping him defensively and stopping his ability to actually be an efficient finisher. And they're two things which can be really important. So that... that that's what does bother me a bit. Yeah, maybe Bledsoe gets traded, but I'm still pretty confident of him having another season like this. Maybe he's got two more years in him at this sort of a level. Maybe. Or maybe the Suns find themselves drafting a point guard in this draft at pick four. Maybe they take a De'Aaron Fox. Maybe they get Dennis Smith if Philadelphia doesn't take my advice. Maybe they look, maybe Lonzo Ball slides. Maybe they get Frank Nilakina, which I think they, I don't think they will. I think I'm pretty confident the Suns are going to be looking at a wing here, whether that's Jackson, Isaac, or Tatum, they'll be getting one of those guys with that pick. But you never know. They could bring in a point guard there. And then then you'd have Euless. Then you'd have Fox slash Smith slash Ball in that spot. And that might enable that might enable a trade of Bledsoe. But again, when you're trading Bledsoe, who are you trading him to? And what are you getting back? Who needs, who needs point guards that have got assets they're going to give back to you? Do you trade him to Sacramento? Well, they'll just pick someone at pick five. So do they need a, a point guard? Do you trade him to the Knicks? Who do they give you? Carmelo Anthony, does that help Phoenix? I can't see how Mallow would help you any more than what Bledsoe currently is. In fact, he wouldn't. Where, where does where does Bledsoe end up going uh, in a trade that, that, that ends up helping that team and, and bringing back an asset for Phoenix? So I am a big Eric Bledsoe fan as... Um, 
as you as you are well aware. Um, let's um let's move on to the next player. Who is the next player? The next player is Devin Booker, and this is the guy that most people will want to hear about. Of course, actually, no, I'll go back to Bledsoe because he was um you know, on off numbers. He was a plus three point four, which is pretty good. Booker a three point nine. So again, that that's a real positive for him in those uh in those plus minus numbers there as well. Let's talk about Devin. Of course, he had that seventy point explosion, which was fantastic for a guy of his age to put up that for, for, for a guy of any age to put up that sort of performance is fantastic. But Booker's twenty years old. But it's not everything's not one hundred percent rosy with Devin Booker. He, he was he was good this season. There's no doubt about that. He he had an improved year by a considerable amount. Now we were well, I was concerned for him heading into the season. What do they do with Brandon Knight? What do they do with Bledsoe? What do they do with Booker? The the concern was is how is he going to get his shot attempts because he had that run at the end of his rookie season when Bledsoe was out, when Knight was out, when he was taking all the shots and he was scoring a lot. He doesn't do anything else, but he was scoring a lot. And we were going, okay, well, some of those shots are going to go to Bledsoe. Some of that ball handling is going to go back to Knight and and uh, and Bledsoe, which Booker was doing at the end of that rookie season as well. And we thought, okay, maybe his efficiency will increase because he's not having to take all these contested shots, not having to, to take all the double teams, not having to be the man all the time. Well, that didn't really happen. We did see... Um, we saw him start overnight, obviously. We saw him play 35 minutes a night, and we didn't see his field goal attempts decrease at all. In fact, he took 18 field goal attempts per game. We also didn't see his efficiency improve. We saw his field goal percentage go from 42.3% to 42.4%. We saw his true shooting actually take a minor step backwards from 53.5 to 53.2. It's only minor, but there wasn't a big increase in his efficiency. But one thing that was good from Booker is that he took his three-point percentage up from 34 to 36%. And that's... You know, and that's coming from a, a, a poor start to the year in his three pointers as well, and that you know caused me to say that in any comparison, he's not he's not a three point shooter. He's not Clay Thompson. He's not a guy who takes the majority of his shots from three. He's a scorer that looks like Clay Thompson, but he's not. He's not this three point marksman guy that's a forty percent three point shooter. He is a guy that scores from two point shots, from getting you know, in closer to the rim, and, and takes a few threes and hits them at a league average rate. And I think there's as quickly as we can get that comparison out of our minds, the better we'll be in evaluating what Booker is. He is not a three-point marksman. He is not this guy that's just banging in threes, and that's all he does. It's far. He can hit him. Yeah, 36% is fine, but he's not 40% Devin Booker. He's not the guy that takes 70% of his shots from three. He's not a guy that that's all that, that he does. In, in fact, he only took 30, um, sorry, 28% of his shots from three, which is a really small amount for a guy that is considered, you know, Thompson's a guy who's a 50, 60% guy from three. It is a big, big difference, and it is, it is a change. Now, Booker's overall season, 22 points, huge. Two threes, you know, really good. Three boards, three and a half assists, and you love those three and a half assists from him. 0.9 steals, and as I said, the, the field goal percentage at 42%. That made him the 72nd ranked player in fantasy leagues this year, but we did see an increase from him post-All-Star. He went from 78th pre to 45th post. Can we expect him to do what he did post-All-Star moving forward? Well, in those 23 games, he averaged almost 25 points. 
He got his rebounds up over four. He got his assists to four. He hit his three, two threes a game. He had a steal a game, and the inefficiency was still there, the, the same 42 36% from field and, and from three. But he got his field goal attempts up, but some of that, again, much like his rookie season, is due to the absence of Eric Bledsoe. Those extra two shots a game he took, which gave him the extra two points per game, that's because of Bledsoe not being there. So what is the expectation from Booker heading into his third season? He'll be 21. Lots of people in their third season take a big step up. Where can he take himself? Can he go from 22 points a game to 25 points a game? I don't think that's that crazy, but he does need to improve his efficiency because I don't think it's going to come from him taking instead of 18 shots a game, taking 21 shots a game. I think he's going to have to go from 18, 19 shots and take his true shooting up from 54 to 57. And that's a real possibility for Booker. The other thing that did improve was his assist numbers, which were which were really good for him during the season as well. You know, to average um, you know, over the last couple of months of the season, over four assists a game is super impressive for a guy like that. The other thing that is going to hold him back a little bit is his um, defensive stuff, his steal rate. He did get a steal a game post-All-Star in those 36 minutes, so that, that's impressive. Now, there was, normally I answer the questions at the end of the podcast, but there's one here about Booker, which um, which I will throw in now just because it, uh, it makes sense if I can find the question and give the person their, uh, their correct due. Where are they? I wish I had planned this out earlier. Um, I can't even find the question. That's disappointing. Oh, no, here it is. James Peck. Where do you see Booker's value topping out in dynasty leagues? Is he CJ McCollum type with a poorer field goal percentage? And I think that's really, really spot on. James, I think that's sort of what, what you're talking about. A guy that's a 20-point scorer, that is a secondary ball handler, can get four assists a game, that's not going to be a high steals guy, that's going to be a 0.8 to 1 steals guy a game, <clears throat> that's going to be a guy that, that gets that hits his free throws at a pretty decent rate, and he's getting to the line a shitload as well. So he's a big positive in free throw percentage. But CJ's a guy that's a 48% shooter, while Booker, I don't ever think, ever becomes that high. So yeah, I think that's a realistic expectation from him. Can Booker ever become a 45% shooter? Absolutely, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did that next year. I just don't ever think he becomes that hyper-efficient shooting guard like a CJ who's a 48 guy who... And this is off the top of my head. I think CJ was a 58 or 59 true shooting guy. I probably should look that up, but that's, that's the sort of guy that McCullum is. And I'm not sure I ever see Bledsoe getting, not Bledsoe, uh, Booker getting there, but the four assists a game, one steal a game, 24 points a game, two threes a game. Absolutely. So yes, he, he is a guy that, that can become perhaps a top 40 guy, a punt field goal, top 30 type of player. Not sure he ever becomes a top 20 guy, but I am fairly confident that we will see Booker as a top 50 player next season. And I think that should be should be about right. Now, he, he had a stretch at the start of the year where he was horrendous. He was providing 20 points a game and nothing else. And his stats were down, his ranking was down. But that those points are so super valuable that they give him two, three round boost as it is. And then those other numbers started to come in. And by the end of the year, it was a pretty impressive performance from Booker as a 20 year old uh, leading the team and getting more talent around him is only going to help. And maybe we do see that efficiency rise, which we didn't see this year, which we thought with Bledsoe coming back, we didn't see it. Maybe it happens next season. That's probably enough out of me from, actually just one, one more thing. 
on Booker. His advanced numbers weren't great. His defense is horrendous. It is really bad. He was really poor in his defensive metrics. His PER was below average. His true shooting was below average. Um, his win shares per 48 were absolutely horrendous. I said on yesterday's show you know, that an average number is 0.1. He was at 0.035, so well, well down. And that's a quarter of the value of, say, Eric Bledsoe at that, in that metric. Yeah, a big, big difference. We're talking about him at 0.35, which is the equivalent of Barbosa, of Eulis, of um, who else have we got? Oh, yeah, it's half of what Jared Dudley's. And the win shares is not the be all and end all of anything. But when you compare, you know, below average outcomes in his box score plus minus, which was a negative two point three, which is horrible. You know, negative VORP, below average PER. There are a lot of things that he needs to work on. But for fantasy, um, you know, what he provides, we saw the stats. There, there, there. There's top fifty upside. But in terms of him becoming an absolute star NBA player. There's a lot of work to do because the defensive stuff is horrendous. Some of the shot selection is horrendous. The efficiency is not good. He's got a lot of room to work, and he's got a lot of time to do it, of course. I'm not sold that he does it. I'm not sold that he ever becomes this superstar top 10 player in the league, and that's okay. But he does have a lot of work to do. A lot of his things aren't pointing in the right direction, but there is room to work. But for fantasy, we saw the way the stats progressed, and those stats that we count in fantasy – He's doing pretty well at them, so I think that's a that's a positive for him in that sort of a scenario. Let's talk. Um, let's talk uh, Tyson Chandler, a guy that played just forty seven games, twenty eight minutes per game, eight and a half points, eleven and a half rebounds, half a block, half a steal, shot sixty seven from the field and seventy three from the line for a monster true shooting of seventy percent. We obviously didn't see Tyson Chandler at the end of the season. He played one game post All Star. We also saw him for some reason. Uh, in a towel after Devin Booker's 70-point performance. I don't know if you're not playing, why you're showering with the boys. Maybe maybe you just want to see, maybe you just want to get in there and soap everyone up. Hey, Devin, spun, sponge bath on me. It was weird. That photo was so weird after that game of Brandon Knight, Eric Bledsoe and Tyson Chandler all being like in the showers. You guys didn't play. You've been shut down for weeks. It, it was weird. I don't know. It was weird. Anyway, as for Chandler, he's an interesting one. What do they do with him? He's still got two more years on his contract. Uh, Is he a tradable player? Mm, Who's trading for Tyson Chandler at at that sort of money? You would have to attach an asset on that, I think, to get rid of Chandler because no one's looking at him and saying, Tyson Chandler is making us better. Brooklyn might look at him and go, we'll take him if you give us something. Will you give us pick 32? Will you give us Eulis, which they won't? Will you package in Bender, which they won't? But these are you have to attach an asset to get rid of Tyson Chandler. With Williams and Len both being restricted free agents, and I think the chance of them coming back is pretty decent. Where does that leave Chandler for next season? Does Watson go back to him and start him? Now, I've been super critical of Earl Watson. Super critical of the way that he used Chandler and the fact that he would continue. Now, Chandler had a good year, did what he needed to do, but it was never, it, it didn't make sense for what Suns wanted to do. And I was really critical of Watson playing him because the reason they were playing him, in my opinion, was the fact that Chandler's the guy who got Watson the job and they'd been mates from like back in high school. And it made no sense. But then Watson, you know, he sacked up and he, 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 he benched him. And he said, well, cool, we're just going to go with some of these younger guys. 
I don't know what that means for next season. Much like when we talk about the Lakers and Mozgov and Deng and we evaluate the second half of the season, those guys, are they're not shutting down for the entirety of the season. Same as Chandler. He's back. He's going to play. Where does he fit in? He's probably going to be a 20-minute-a-game sort of guy. Probably not the 27. Or maybe they just let Alex Len walk and they play Chandler and Big Source and Chandler gets those 28 minutes again. That's a distinct possibility. In terms of his, you know, contributions on the court. He had an on-off of 3.1, a really solid number there. He was a, weirdly, Tyson Chandler was the 78th ranked player in fantasy this year, mainly because of that monster field goal percentage and monster rebound, like big numbers. He was a negative in every other category, but if you play with offensive rebounds, he killed it for you as well. I'm just, I I don't think we're going to get 28 minutes Tyson. And And this is another weird thing. Chandler played 28 minutes a game. The year before, he played 25. So Earl Watson said, cool, Chandler, you're getting older, worse, we're worse, we're developing younger players. How about you play more? And that's exactly what happened. That was, again, just another criticism I had. But Chandler played well. There's no denying that Chandler did play well. He rebounded well. He he finished efficiently. He was a key part of what they did uh, defensively on the court, had a nice above-average PR, big win shares, positive defensive impact. Yeah, he was a he was a key player for them, but where he fits moving forward, I can't see any scenario where I would look at Chandler and go, you know what, he is going to be a standard league draft pick next year. He'd be that guy that you'd let go out of the end of a draft and go, you know what, I actually need a field goal percentage bump, and there's no bigger bump than Tyson Chandler around. Even if he plays, say, 22 minutes a night, he can actually, and it's hard to do, but he can be a big impact guy in that field goal percentage because instead of being a 50% guy, he's a 68% guy, a 69% guy. Giggity! Um, he, he, he can put together on six attempts you know, a field goal percentage high enough that actually impacts your overall team's field goal percentage, which is hard to do, and that that makes him useful. But, but, what what do they do? Do they go into next season starting him or, or starting Len? At, honestly, at this point, I reckon they're going to go in starting Chandler and playing him 22, 23 minutes a night at this very early stage. But it is something that there's I have absolutely zero clarity on at this point, again, because we don't know the status of Len and Williams. But I think that they might even go back to just playing like a a, a three-man rotation there with no one getting huge minutes. I can totally see that being the uh, the thing that happens. Um, TJ Warren, what a weird, weird season this was for Mr. Warren. He um, started off the season really well and was that super surprise packet to start the year. They started him over PJ Tucker, which they should have been doing. And then he suffered this mysterious head injury, not a concussion, a head injury, which kept him out for weeks at a time. And then when he came back, he was lost. He was played in an unfamiliar role. He was jerked around by Watson all the time, limited minutes. Um, and, and he wasn't great himself in that time. TJ, he, he really struggled. He was a guy that I, I was pretty keen on holding on to and expecting this to come back. And it came back in a really, really superb way. Post All-Star break, he was the 32nd uh Ranked, sorry, 34th ranked player, and pre he was 166th due to that weird patch of time he had through uh, December, January. But he was massively strong in that post All Star uh, area, averaging 17 points on 13 attempts. He had seven and a half rebounds, 1.6 assists, over a steal, and 57% field goal percentage, which again comes into what I talked about earlier about his 
innate ability to finish at the rim. It was absolutely superb from TJ. Now, he doesn't hit his threes at a high rate, 32% post-All-Star. He hit them at 27% for the season. But a high-rebounding guy that gets over a steal a game that finishes at such a high percentage, he he plays like a, a center almost without the blocks on the wing. I really like him. Um... The team was 2.1 points better off with him on the bench, which is obviously not ideal. It's not a big difference, but it, but it's not ideal. Um, but I worry about TJ Warren's future a little bit. I love what he could do. I've loved his ability to score and score efficiently. Yeah, his field goal percentage in his three seasons in the NBA, 53, 50, and 50 as a wing. And this is a guy that's not bank, you know, not building that up with um, three-point percentage. And therefore, his true shooting hasn't been awesome. 55-55-54, despite being a 50% shooter from the field. He just doesn't get efficient at those other areas. The reason I worry about him is, I think the Suns pick a wing in this draft. Whether that's Jackson, whether that's Tatum, whether that's Isaac. I think that's what they do at pick four. And that's obviously Warren's position. Now, Warren played a little bit of four at the end of the year and was quite successful there also. I don't think that his minutes are really going anywhere next season, and I would expect a 30-minute um, type season from TJ. There's no PJ Tucker around who is siphoning minutes away from him, and we saw post-All-Star a shitload of minutes from Warren. He played 34 and a half minutes a game after the All-Star break after Tucker was gone. I would expect that cut to come back to 30 with the introduction of a wing like Jackson or, or Isaac or Tatum. Um, but then it also comes into what happens with the centers and Chandler and Dragon Bender, the two guys who weren't in that post-All-Star rotation who are going to play at that in that 3-4-5 mix. You know, Bender can, had played some time at the 3. He can play at the 4. He can play at the 5. Chris at the 4 and the 5 as well. Chandler, Len Williams. There's a lot of guys there. So if you're evaluating TJ Warren in a dynasty point of view, I would be just a little bit worried about him actually reaching the heights of what he did post-All-Star. I don't think he's really going to be able to do that on a consistent basis. Maybe he can do it for one more year. But I think ideally he fits into a sixth-man scoring-type role off the bench in a 26 to 27-minute role. And that takes him from being that top 50 guy, which he was for that stretch to start the season and to end the season, and then there was the shit show in the middle. But it takes him from being that top 50 guy to being that guy that's a top 100 guy, top 110 sort of a player who averages maybe 15 points on the 50% shooting and gets you maybe under a steal and hits no threes and gets you four and a half rebounds instead of six rebounds. And then it doesn't look quite as sexy. So TJ Warren, they value him as part of what they do as their core. And I think that he will still play a significant role next season. But after that, depending on how these guys develop or these other players develop, I'd be just a little bit cautious of of what to expect from him. And I just don't think it's going to be a guarantee that he continues his ascendancy up and I think he's more likely to, to push for a year or two and then sort of settle back down and, and become that guy that you know hovers around that 100 mark. And that's sort of some of the calculations you need to do in Dynasty Leagues and have a look. And you know, what can he do what he did post-All-Star? Oh, Chandler's back. Um, that 
yeah, moves Chris away from the five a little bit down to the four. Bender comes in, takes some minutes away. The addition of a draft pick. There are a few other variables that you need to pay attention to. And well, maybe maybe the Suns make some sort of big deal and bring a guy like Jimmy Butler in and send out pick four and TJ Warren. That's a massive possibility as well. Not that I think the Bulls would necessarily do that, but that's that's always a possibility. And and Warren can be an impactful player, but he doesn't strike me as this guaranteed type stud that's going to do all these um all these things on a consistent basis as we uh, as we move forward. So he he is a real interesting player, I think, as we as we get forward. Another guy that you know, disappointing. Uh, Alex Len, he was the 163rd ranked player. Just quickly, the Suns had four top 100 fantasy guys last year: Bledsoe, Booker, Chandler, and Warren. Which, for a team as shit as they were, that was uh, that's pretty impressive stuff. As for Alex Len, 163rd on the season, we saw him start the second half of the year. That didn't really change much in terms of his ranking. He went from 151 pre in the head-to-head rankings to 129th post. It wasn't a big jump. And for the season, he played 20 minutes a game, averaged 8.6.5 boards, half a steal, 1.3 blocks, and shot 50% from the field and 72% from the line. He was a guy that yeah, a lot of people were, oh, what kind of a center are you if you can't block shots and you can't hit a high field goal percentage, which is what happened in the second half of last year. Because Earl Watson, in all his infinite glory, was starting um, Len at the four. And that's why it's always important to check these things. And when Alex Len plays at the five, his block rate goes through the roof, his rebounding rate improves, and his field goal percentage improves. And we saw that all happen this year. So big changes based on positioning. And you're playing in the spot that he should have. But Len, post-All-Star, didn't really, when he had that role as a starter, didn't really take off. Because he only still played 22 minutes a night. Yes, he would start each night over Alan Williams, but then Williams would come in and play his 24 minutes a night as well. And Len never was able to establish himself as as a key figure in, in the center. In fact, the team was horrendous with him on the court, negative 8.9, which is really bad. It's not the worst on the team. That honor goes to Brandon Knight. But it's pretty bloody close to it. In fact, it's uh, outside of Ronnie Price. It was the second worst on-off number for the entire team. He did have an average PER. He did have a really solid defensive box score, plus-minus as well, um, of 1.2. But offensively, he did struggle quite a bit, Alex Len, and, and didn't take great shots all the time. My faith in him ever becoming a top 100 player, it's pretty done. I can't see him ever being in a role that he plays 30 minutes a night. Especially when the Suns have Chandler, they can play Chris at the five. They can play Bender at the five as well. And I'm not. I'm just not. Maybe look. Maybe Len doesn't even come back on this team. I'm not really feeling it from him just at the moment. I still think there is some potential for him. I'm not sure it's ever going to happen in Phoenix. And maybe if he goes somewhere else, it's uh, it's going to be a benefit. But to me, he's striking me as someone who never becomes more than a 26 minute a night guy at most. And that's obviously going to put some sort of a dent in his fantasy value. Now, he can block shots, and he can grab rebounds, and he can score at times. So they can all be useful things. But don't get overly excited about Alex Len. And I am, uh, I'm dropping off a little bit in my, uh, in my enjoyment of him as a player. Marquise Chris is the next one. He was a starter for the majority of the season, played all 82 games. He finished the season as the 189th ranked player. But it's a big difference because he was the 271st ranked player before the All-Star, 82nd post-All-Star. A big, big difference from Chris. He was also a negative 8.7 in his on-off metric, so just behind Alex Len as the second worst on the team. So that was pretty horrendous. And he still, I don't think that he's good. 
I think that he is young. Oh, no, I think. I know that he is young. He is very young, and he showed super impressive stuff, and he might not become good for two, three years, but he made a lot of dumb mistakes. His fouling was a massive, massive issue. He couldn't stay on the court because he couldn't stop fouling because of dumbness, really, because of just bad, bad decision-making. And his positioning is defensively was horrendous. Um, yeah, he blocked some shots. Um, he started to hit some threes. All that stuff was good, but some of his stuff, some of his decision-making and some of his actual basketball knowledge was her- absolutely horrendous. And he was, for months of this season, the worst starter in the NBA. I don't think there's really much debate about that. But he got really, he improved a lot over the course of the season. And But I'm still not convinced that he is a starter-level player. I think that Dragon Bender is a better player, than my, or will become a better player than Marquise Chris. And he is the guy that the Suns should be investing more in. Now, can you play a Bender-Chris lineup together? You can try it. I'm not sure how well that works out. Does you know, Bender play at the four and Chris plays as the rim-protecting five? And you can play five out with those guys as well? Maybe. And he is young. He does have a long way to go, but a PR of 12, you know, poor true shooting, um, just not great stuff from Chris a lot of the time. Now, if we look at him post-All-Star, he played 27 minutes a night. He got the foul trouble under control a little bit. He averaged 13 points. He hit a three a game, had six boards, a steal, one and a half blocks. They are really, really good numbers, like super good numbers. And it's a massive base for him to build on, but he needs to be able to stay out of foul trouble. Can he be a top 100 player? I I think he probably will be, given the way that Watson has used him and, and love what he's seen from him and continue to persist with him even when he was piss poor. But he does need to make sure he gets rid of that fouling issue, which as we look through NBA history, the foul rate from players drops considerably from rookie to second year to second year to third year. It does drop a bit, so I expect him to be able to stay on the court. Which one's the real Marquis Chris, the guy that struggled early on, the guy who started to look better at the end of the season? Well, you'd have to say the one that started to look better at the end of the season. As you get more experienced, as you get older, as you grow, those things improve. And let's hope that he can continue. He is a definite triple one threat. There's no doubt about that. He almost averaged that post all-star 1.23s, 0.9 steals, and 1.5 blocks in, in those 27 minutes. So you give him 30 minutes, and it, it's a clear triple one. He also rebounded at a better rate than I expected, considering how piss poor of a rebounder he was in college. And uh, you got that efficiency up as well post-All-Star, where he's at a true shooting of 58%, much better than his 53% over the course of the season. So definitely some improvement from Chris, but some of his work on the court needs needs, needs a lot of work. And that's reflected in that on-off number of negative 8.7. In terms of his fantasy future, it's still muddied because of his inefficiencies, because of his, um, yeah, I guess your, your on-court concerns with him, and the presence of Dragon Bender. The thing the Suns will need to work out is that can they play 4-5? Because if they can, and then they can both play 30 minutes and they can become a, a real key for this team as they move forward. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that that can't happen. I think there's a real chance that it does happen. But Chris is a guy whose numbers can become fantasy-friendly, uh, were fantasy-friendly, and there's real scope for him to improve on that. Now, I'm not ever, I'm not convinced that he's ever going to become a top 30 guy, 
I'm not convinced that he ever becomes a consistent top 50 guy, but I reckon you'll get a top 50, one top 50 season out of Chris at some point, and I think he's more likely to be a 100 to 75 type of guy for for a few years. But there is still, I'm definitely not sold on it. I think there's still a level of uncertainty with Chris um, with with the basketball IQ stuff. Not with his fantasy productivity, because that's fine. More that, can you stay on the court? Can you stay out of foul trouble? And can you actually play good enough basketball where you're kept on the court to play starters minutes? That's still the concern that I have with Marquise Chris at this point. But it was a positive uh, rookie season for him. Jared Dudley played 21 minutes a game in his 64 games. He was the 223rd ranked player. Averaged seven points, three and a half boards. He hit over a three a game, two assists, 45% from the field and 66 from the line. Jared Dudley is one of my favorite players in the NBA just from a personality point of view. He's going to be a great media person, we hope, when he uh, finally gives up, uh, hangs up the boots and uh, and stops playing. He The team was 5.3 points better off with him on the court, which is almost the highest on the team behind, uh, behind uh, Derek Jones and Big Source. Um, and, and was impressive. We saw him start the season as the starting power forward. That was always a placeholder position. He moved then out for Chris to come in. He was, and then he moved out of the rotation entirely. Then he returned to the rotation. He was, he was all over the place. But what he did was really impactful for the Suns throughout this season. From a fantasy point of view, yeah. Well, there's nothing here. We're going to see much more Bender. Remember, Bender played 13 minutes a game in 43 games. You saw Dudley at 21 minutes in 64. Expect Dudley to come back to you know 40 minutes or so, yeah, 10 min- or 40 games, 10 minutes. I would expect a big decrease as Bender assumes that role, as Warren plays more four, as pick four comes in as well. Dudley is great at what he does, really, really superb in terms of being that team player and the guy that puts in, and, and he's a, you can I devalue veteran leadership at times. I don't think I devalue anything that Dudley does. I really think he's a, he's a key cog for teams and is just a winning player who adapts and, and does the hard work and doesn't take shit from anybody. And I, I do really like Jared Dudley as a player. But from fantasy, expect him to have a pretty significant decline, I think, as we move forward. Let's talk big source. Alan Williams. He played 47 games only. He only played 15 minutes a game, but he was the talk of fantasy circles for time in February and March. Over the course of the year, he averaged seven and a half points and six boards half a steal, 0.7 blocks, and shot 52%. But we want to look at what he did post-All-Star, where he did get more minutes, 22 minutes a game. 11 and 9, he had 0.8 steals, 0.8 blocks, and 51% shooting. That was obviously impressive. He had 6.3 on-off for the team, second highest behind Derek Jones, and he saw his ranking jump from 335th to 113th from pre- and post-All-Star, a significant jump there. People do overvalue Alan Williams. He's only like 6'9". He's an aggressive rebounder, but people saw some of the things. Oh, why won't they start him? Why aren't they giving him 30 minutes? And the reason is he's not that good. He is a very good rebounder. He's a super energy player, but he is not a good enough center to become a starting center on any team. He doesn't have that upside, in my opinion, but he is a super guy to play 21 minutes or so a night. And we did see him start to get, I guess, figured out at the end of the season, and teams limited his effectiveness to a pretty significant degree. And then he saw his minutes drop during that time frame um, before they ramped up a little bit towards the end of April as well. I have, you know, look, we, we saw him become that guy that was a, a top 150 player after the All Star break. A really surprising top 150 player. 
would I ever draft him in that spot? Probably not. I guess if Len moves and there's just Chandler and Williams there, then I'd consider it. But I can't ever see him becoming a 30-minute game a game guy. I just can't ever see that happening. And I can't really ever see him being a consistent 25 minutes a game guy. He's more of a player that you look at in 16-team leagues. But again, remember, for this team struggling, he still only played half the games and still played limited minutes. And some of that is Earl Watson, but some of it I actually agree with Watson. I just don't think that he is necessarily up to the level that he needed to be at, and his potential is quite limited. It sounds like I'm being a bit harsh here on Alan Williams, but I just think it's important to sort of understand the limitations of these players, and he's got no ability to shoot or pass. Or His defense is okay. I wouldn't say it's spectacularly good or anything like that, but, it, but, it's, but it's passable. Really good PR for him, almost almost a PR of 20, which is a, obviously an impressive number there for him as well. And he was quite good. And I could see the Sun saying, you know what, we've got Chandler around. We're not going to pay Alex Len 10 million. Let's bring Big Source back at 6 million a year. To me, he is sort of like a Cristiano Felizio, that sort of a level player. I actually think Felizio is probably a little bit better. Um, and, and that's sort of the level he's at. So he's not really going... If you're in a 12-team a dynasty league, he wouldn't really come into my considerations of someone to keep. In a 16-teamer, yeah, sure. I think he can have that value for maybe one or two years. But that's about it. I just don't see you know, really gigantic upside with uh, with big source at all. Let's talk Brandon Knight, one of the most horrendous players of the entire season. He only played 54 games. He played 21 minutes a game and averaged 11 points. He didn't even hit a three a game. He had only two and a half assists. He shot under 40% and only 32% from three. He, like uh, Tyson Chandler, played just one game post-All-Star and was disgusting. He moved to the bench to start the season in favor of Devin Booker. He wasn't happy with that. Cool. I don't care, Brandon. You're not that good. And you look at him and you go, what is this guy? He's a guy that put together two consecutive top 40 seasons before this year. His rankings went from 32, 39 to 247th. It's a really big drop. We saw his field goal percentage drop from 42 down to 40. So it's a significant drop. But one thing we saw is his assist rate go from five last, or five, not rate, his assist per 36 went from 5.1 to 4.1. It's a, it's a pretty decent drop, especially when then you play 15 minutes less a game. It's a big impact on your field goal percentage category. Where does Brandon Knight fit? At this point, he he's a, he's a toxic asset. We saw the the... I guess the confrontations he had with the team when they shut him down. And then when they pulled Bledsoe out, they said, uh, Brandon, we want you to go back and play. And he said, uh, nah, sorry guys, my back's sore. And I can understand that. I, I disagreed with the, the shutting down of these guys as aggressively as they did. But Brandon Knight from the start of the season wasn't happy and it impacted his play. And it impacted his standing in the organization. And I just don't really ever see what's going to happen with him moving forward. It just feels like it's done for Brandon Knight. It just doesn't feel um, positive at all. He's still got years left on his contract, a pretty decent years. And to get rid of him, you definitely have to attach an asset. No one's taking Brandon Knight back for you know, for a straight, straight deal. You need to attach something to that in order to get... Um, in order to get some, uh, or to get rid of Brandon Knight off your books, at this point, you have to think that he's the third string point guard. Maybe he's the he's the backup shooting guard on the team. That's sort of where he fits because he's going to be behind Ulysses, Booker, Bledsoe. 
those three guys are definitely ahead of him. So he's the fourth guard pretty much on the team. So does he crack the top 200 next year? I have my doubts. And that's such a weird thing to say for a guy that was top 40 for two years in a row. And it just goes to show that how quickly things can change. You know, I I talk about guys, maybe he can have one or two top 50 seasons. And this is the reason why. Because Knight had two top 40 seasons. And you go, okay, two, yep, 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 bang. Oh, cool, now he's outside the top 200. Like, shit changes really quickly. Really, really quickly in the NBA. And you forget how quick this stuff can actually change or how fleeting players' time in the spotlight or in the limelight can be. And that is, that's also important when looking at draft stuff as well. And you know, really, if you want to really focus in on need versus best player available, it's never a great idea because in three years' time, your roster is going to be 75% different. So your need then becomes way different. If you take the best player, then you build around that. My only issue is when you take you take best if you've got a bunch of guys who you think are all equal, then you take need over best player available. Otherwise, in general, you just go, well this you know, our roster could turn over so quickly and generally will that we just want the best guy available because shit changes really, really quickly. Tyler Eulis, another guy where lots of interest from people with him. He played 61 games as a second-round draft pick, 18 minutes a game, and the overall stat line doesn't look great. He was the 257th-ranked player. He averaged 7 points, 3.7 assists, 0.8 steals, and was um, a true shooting of uh, 47% because he shot just 27% on threes. But if we look to what Eulis did post-All-Star, much more impressive, 31 minutes a game as he became the starting point guard with Bledsoe out. He averaged 13 points. Now, he only hit point six threes, which is disappointing. 2.8 rebounds, 7 assists, 1 steal, 43% from the field, 76 from the line for a true shooting of still 49%. And that is the thing that's going to kill him, is the inefficiency. Uh, the defense is really bad from uh, from Eulis as well, understandably. And the team was negative 0.7 points uh, on off number, which is about even, but you would hope he'd be a little bit better. But even with this big boost in playing time he saw post All-Star, he still only became the the 113th, uh, sorry, the 127th ranked player post All-Star in head-to-head numbers. And, and that's fine because um, the assist numbers were super, but the inefficiency was a big killer, especially considering how many attempts that he was actually taking and, and missing and then providing you know, no threes, limited rebounds, uh, just a steal a game. Now, I really like Eulis. I really think he's a super player. Um, but I don't think that the Suns should be looking at him, or I don't think we should be expecting him to be the starting point guard next year. I don't... Uh, maybe I'm wrong. But I think having a defensive backcourt of Eulis and Booker is just an absolute disaster. Booker's defense is disgusting, and Eulis, he, he physically just can't do it. And that that's just not a good combination. Now, as for Eulis's future... I said this plenty of times. He is an elite backup point guard for years in a 10-year NBA career as a a 20-minute-a-game guy, at least. I don't... Look, he might have a season or two of starting, and maybe for some reason the Suns make the mistake and trade Bledsoe and get nothing back and start Euless next season. I think that he is still going to be limited by some of the areas he struggles in, in terms of being an elite fantasy prospect, but his ability to get assists, there's no doubt about that. But as we highlighted earlier in the show, he's um, such a low assist percentage on his two-point attempts needs to change. He needs to be able to play off the ball. He needs to be able to finish at the rim a little bit as well, and he needs to work on stuff defensively, which is going to be a struggle for Euless as he moves forward. 
uh, much like you know talking about can he have these strong seasons? I'm not. I'm not that convinced. I just. I don't buy him as a above average starting point guard. I can say that he. You know, maybe he could be the 28th best starting point guard in the NBA. But that's not what you want to do, especially when you've got a better point guard than that already on the team. Ulis is just a very handy safety blanket. They would have loved what they saw from him at times. He also had some horrendous performance performances. He's shooting just terribly and looking um, yeah, poor at times. But the majority of his time starting in the second half of the season was a positive. But is that enough to say, all right, we've seen enough out of Ulis in these 25 games post-All-Star 26 games? that he's going to be our starter moving forward. I don't think that's how Phoenix should be looking at it, but I'm not Phoenix, so I'm not 100% sure. But I, one thing I do know is when I, when I look at Euless, I don't see fantasy start. I don't see top 30 upside in 35 minutes a game. I, I don't see him doing that with the uh, with the, the inefficiencies he has in his game, with that, the three-point shooting, the the lack of rebounding, the, the defensive stuff, the field goal percentage, the non-elite free throw percentage as well. I think, and and the ability not to necessarily get to the line all that much is a little, which, which will improve as he gets older. There's no doubt about that because he is not, uh, he's obviously not an old player. He's he's 21 years of old. Years of old. That's not a word. He's 21 years of age at the moment. But you know, lots of his stuff wasn't awesome during the season, so I wouldn't be banking on him becoming a, a stud starting point guard or anything along those lines. Derek Jones Jr., a guy that people wouldn't have heard of really before the season started. Phoenix fans obviously knew him because he was on their team, and then he came to uh, rose to national prominence in the dunk competition with some crazy athleticism. He actually led this team in on-off numbers, a positive 9.8. He showed some flashes, down the end of the season, I think that's uh, that's fair to say. But we saw him starting games for TJ Warren at times, and when he started, he just was invisible. You know, really, really low uh, usage sort of a player. Just didn't see <clears throat> didn't see anything really spectacular from Jones to make me think. You know what? There's a there's a great deal of potential in him. Um, look at him post All Star. He was the 277th ranked player. I think if he has one top 200 season in his career, I think he'd be pretty happy with that. I reckon that's going to be somewhat of a struggle. He averaged five points a game, two and a half rebounds in his 17 minutes. He he couldn't hit threes. He was only at 0.1 a game at 27%. Defensively, under half a steal, under half a block, which is not bad in 17 minutes, but it's it's not spectacular. But weirdly, he did finish at 57% field goal percentage, which is huge. And some of that's due to his athleticism because it obviously wasn't helped by his shooting, given how poorly he shot from three. But he, that was, you know, obviously some impressive numbers. He finished at the rim at uh, a ridiculous rate, 72%, and had a weird, between 10 and 16 feet, he was able to hit 50% of his shots, which is, you know, a weirdly high number. Now, he took pretty much no shots there at all and didn't take any shots from three. He's basically just a guy that finished at the rim. So that's why his field goal percentage ended up being as uh, as high as it was. Um, Leandro Barbosa, we talked about some of his positiveness at the start of the year or the start of the podcast in his um, on-off numbers and lineup numbers and data and that sort of stuff. He played only 14 minutes a game in his 67 games, six points, 1.6 boards. He offers nothing for fantasy at all. Just... Just nothing, and and don't be too um, don't be thinking anything positive about Leandro Barbosa is what I'm what I'm trying to get out. The team was three point seven points better off with him on the court, but there's nothing really to get excited about with Barbosa. Let's talk Dragon Bender. 
Bite my shiny metal ass. I'm a big Dragon Bender fan. He didn't show us massive amounts during the season. He had that ankle injury, which we thought was going to end his year, but then he did come back at the end of the season. He played 43 games. He played 13 minutes a game and averaged just three and a half points. 0.73s, two and a half rebounds, half a block, half an assist, and shot 35% from the line and, weirdly, 36% from the line, which is just bafflingly bad. A true shooting of 44% is horrendous. Um, yeah, a PER, where's his PER? Of five. Yuck. A negative win shares. Disgusting. Horrible box score plus minus. Like nothing, nothing looks great with his advanced numbers at all. But I like him. I think that Dragon Bender is going to become a, a pretty good player. We saw a couple of flashes from him in the middle of the year where he played 27, 20, 27 minutes a night for two consecutive nights. He had in one of those 11 and 13 with three steals and two blocks. In the next game, he backed it up with 10 and four with a steal and a block and hit two triples. That's the sort of thing that he can do. Down the end of the year, when he came back, he had a triple one in his second last game, nine points, eight, eight rebounds in 35 minutes. I'm really in on Dragon Bender. I think that his basketball IQ is through the roof. His passing ability is fantastic. We haven't really seen that yet, but but he is a fantastic passer. His positioning, his movement, his um, anticipation, and he, he, and he can shoot. We did not see it this year at all, but he is going to be one of these guys, in my opinion, that, that had you know, a stinker of a first year, bothered by injury, bothered by poor coaching, that is going to blossom into a real star for this team. So... I don't think there's ever been a better time to try and acquire a player like Dragon Bender in Dynasty than there is now, because people are going to look at his numbers and go, "Man, the guy shot 35% from three. Oh, sorry, from the shit from the line. You know, 38% from the from the field. He averaged three points. If they want to get into it, he had a PR of five. Like he's terrible. And then a lot of people's European bias come in. Oh, soft Euro. Another one of these busts from Europe." which is just so far off the mark, it's not funny. Maybe he's a bust, but the Europe thing is bullshit. Acquire him. I think he's got great fantasy upside. His ability to be a points, threes, rebounds, steals, blocks, and assists contributor, and assists in a lower amount, but he can contribute in all those areas, it is good. I think he's going to be a better player than Marquise Chris. I think he's going to be a better fantasy asset than Marquise Chris eventually. But it's a long, it's a long way away. But now is the time to buy Dragon Bender. Everything that I've seen from him, look, the shots haven't gone in. And at some point, they will start to go in. But the positioning, the movement, the smarts really makes me think that he will be able to carve out himself a good career and probably a very good career when all is said and done. Remember, a piss-poor rookie season is not the end of things. There was a... um. A good thread by Oliver Maroney on Twitter yesterday talking about some of the uh, rookie seasons of some stars, Paul George, Jimmy Butler, CJ McCollum, and how actually terrible they were. In the, I think Butler averaged three points in his rookie season. Paul George, maybe six points. You know, horrendous numbers. And, and Bender didn't have the greatest of time in that, <clears throat> in that rookie campaign, but I, I am pretty, um, I'm pretty excited about him for the future. And this is a really true buy low opportunity for Dragon Bender. We've got Ronnie Price, who played 14 games and 10 minutes a game, average one point. Why the hell was Ronnie Price on a roster? He shot 17% from the field, 18% from three, a true shooting of 27%. Why, oh, why was he on a roster at all? Why did he play? It's just baffling. To me, 
you have the opportunity to sign Ronnie Price, or you could have signed Briante Weber. The decision is just a no-brainer. You, you don't take the guy who's terrible and has been terrible for eight, ten years and offers nothing. You offer the guy that maybe he can give me something. Briante Weber, what does Price give you? Nothing. He should not be back on this team. He should not be back in the NBA. Although, watch the Orlando Magic sign him. That's the team that I can see signing him. Well, they do have a new front office. Maybe the Kings get him to be a backup point guard. Ronnie Price is done. Um, Elijah Millsap, the other guy who finished this season on the roster, played two games and had one and a half points a game. I don't think we need to talk much about Elijah Millsap. He's been out of the league for a couple of years, played a few years back in Utah. Nothing to get too interested about with him. This podcast is running a very long time, so we'll just go straight into answering the questions now. The um, the four-point play. I would love your thoughts on projector stats from guys if they get rotation minutes. Bender, Euless, and Warren. I think I've talked enough about those sort of guys. Um, that will all be rotation minutes or rotation guys next season. There's no doubt about that. <clears throat> I think that you'll see all of them. I think you'll see Warren probably start next year and Bender and Euless come off the bench. Projected stats, it's, it's way too early for me to get into, into that sort of stuff, but I would expect an improvement in efficiency in Euless to a degree. I expect Warren uh, continues at basically the same rate. <clears throat> and Bender, I think, can, will have a significant improvement in, in what he's able to do. Christopher Koffel, is Dragon Bender the greatest player of all time? Close. Not, 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 not far off, Chris. And I know Christopher is a, uh, is a Suns writer who's a, who's a big Bender man as well. And then a, another Suns man chimes in, and that's, uh, Greg Esposito, who you, uh, probably follow on Twitter if you're a Suns person, at Espo. He says, what's the biggest surprise from a fantasy perspective? Booker's 70 or Alan Williams' double doubles? And that's a good question. I would, I would say Williams, because Booker's 70, we knew who Booker was. You know, getting 70 points is, is a surprise. There's, there's no doubt about that. But it was, it was a one-game surprise. But Williams came in and just got double-doubles every single game towards the end of the season. He just continually got them. And for a guy that just wasn't playing at all until that happened, that was a big surprise. And honestly, I wouldn't say it's more useful, but it swung leagues. It swung your team because you're able to grab him and use him and go from there. Whereas Booker, he was just there. He was on your team and he had an improvement. But I think that the, the, the fact that Williams came in and was able to be as consistent as he was was probably the biggest surprise. James C., how many rounds early will Booker be drafted? I don't necessarily know that he will be. I think he might end up going in the 40 to 60 range, and I don't think that's egregiously high. If he can take the improvements that he saw last year and keep them going, he was the 70th ranked player last year. He was you know, 40th post-All-Star. If you take him around that 50 mark, I don't think that's going to be egregiously high at all. Eric Wagner's does Derek Jones's role grow this year? Eh, I don't think so. I think they bring in another wing. Yes, PJ Tucker's gone, but I think that Jones is going to stay as a third stringer in that sort of position. Mr. Mime, if Len was magically thrown into this year's draft, would he be a first-round pick? Yes, I think he would. There is a lack of bigs, um, not to say that Len's done a huge amount. And I, look, I guess if you're throwing him into the draft now at his age, maybe not, but... If you're putting him in as a um, uh, the same sort of prospect coming out of Maryland, yes, he would, and I would still take him towards towards the end of the first round. Aram Palamudian, who will average the most points per game for the Suns next year, including a potential maybe draft pick Booker. I can't look; it's either going to be Booker or Bledsoe. It's not going to be a draft pick. It's going to be Booker or Bledsoe, and I will say Booker. Uh, Booker there. Um, John Gross Didier, a 14-team dynasty league, eight categories, Bender or Euless? 
Good question. Um, Euless, obviously, those assists can be useful, but I have more faith in Bender becoming a uh, 30-minute-a-game guy than I do for Euless. So I would probably go with him, although if I wanted immediate contributions, I would take Euless. Blake says, are you excited that Lonzo could drop to the Suns? Not really. Doesn't doesn't impact me at all. I think it's great for him to not be in a giant city as a rookie. Um, yeah... Nah, it doesn't. Look, he could drop there, and I think the Suns would definitely take him if they got him at pick four, and I think that that could work out for him. But it doesn't. It doesn't have a, a massive impact on me. RP, what do you expect them to do with their crowded front court? Williams, Bender, Len, Dudley, Chandler. Um, well, Dudley will just be phased out, I believe. Um, Len Williams, they're both the restricted free agents. Wouldn't be surprised if Len doesn't return. Uh, I expect at least one of those guys to return. And Muhammad is TJ Warren, a potential sixth man. Yes, I think that will be his role. Um, probably not next year, maybe the year after. Dan Reeves. This past season, I went with guards in six of my first 10 picks. Russ, Kyrie, Batum, Teague, Dragic, and Hood in a 12-man Yahoo League, and I won. Congratulations. I want to throw Euless and Booker in next year. Is that a good move and about what rounds for them respectively? Well, I'll I tell you why I answered this question, Dan, is because that sort of mindset is not the way to go about it. You can't say, I want Euless and Booker, therefore I'm just going to add them in. There's so much more nuance to drafting than just like, I want to add Booker in. Now, for a start, Euless, I think, is going to be overvalued. Depending, Look, if Bledsoe goes, then maybe, but Euless to me is a, is a last pick sort of guy. Even in he had that big role at the end of the year, like he didn't put up huge ranking numbers. Good assist numbers, but not huge numbers. You can't just... I don't think looking at it, especially... Look, after the, the first pick, you can say, this is who I'm targeting. But after that, it just becomes a build strategy, a who's around, who's still there sort of thing. You can't say, I need to target these guys in this specific round. To me, that that's where you can get in a little bit of trouble. Matthew Day, he says... Does a big so- Matthew Barrett day? So does Big Source stay? Yeah, I think so. How much does he get paid? Six million would be, be my guess. Um, he says it's weird because I'm a UCSB alum- alumni, and we used to call him Big Al. I guess that name was already taken. I guess it was, but he also called himself Big Source. Oh, sorry, he's one of his mates called him Big Source um, based on his um, based on his style, his fashion sense, which doesn't make sense to me. But that's apparently where the Big Source name came from. Juan Crispin Jr. is Bledsoe on the way out of Phoenix. I, I don't believe so. Um, I don't believe that he's getting traded necessarily. I think he will eventually. I just don't think it's going to happen necessarily this offseason. And he said, what is Euless's value next year with or without Bledsoe? It's obviously limited. If Bledsoe is around, then he won't he won't sniff the top 150. If Bledsoe is gone and Euless is inserted as the starting point guard, then he's, he's a guy that I'd be comfortable taking. Even if his ranking, say, is 110th, I'd be comfortable taking him around 80th just because, you know, seven assists a game can be quite hard to get. But I don't really see Bledsoe being gone before the season starts. Jackie Dalich, approximately where do you see Chris going in draft next year? Uh, top 100. Uh, I think that'll happen. And we already answered James Peck's question about Devin Booker. All right, that was a long show. Don't forget, check out the rest of the podcast. We've done, clearly, we've done Phoenix. We just did it now. We've done the uh, Lakers. We've done the Sixers, and we've done the Nets. And the best way you can make sure you never miss out on any of these shows is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, and leave a review if you do like the show. Tell your friends, share it around social media, copy out the link, and uh, put in a letter and post it to someone. 
any way you can get it out to people, it helps. Uh, it helps as much as well, it helps. It helps a lot. Remember, if you are interested in becoming the national sales manager for the Locked On Podcast Network, send an email to lockedonpodcasts at gmail.com with your resume, and uh, and David will have a look at that and uh, and choose the best candidate, of course. Enjoy Game 5 of the NBA Finals, which is about to kick off in about 10 minutes here. Not kick off, tip off. We are done here, guys. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya. Devin Booker.